And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am here today with one of my two favorite co-hosts, Scott Gardner. Ah, <laughs> uh, corrected it from my favorite to eh, he's just one of my favorites. I can't, you know, it's it's like your children. <laughs> <laughs> you can't pick out a favorite. Sure you can. <laughs> it's just not me. <laughs> so we're here today, and you know I'm kind of stoked because I feel like we're going old school a little bit. Yes. It's not that we don't have random books periodically, but I don't remember the last time you and I just did one where we got where we went with random books. Without, it's been you know, a long I, time. It's not that I don't love having Doctor Bill with, him, but I don't remember the last time it was just you and I. In fact, I don't even remember the last time it was UI and Dr. Bill who had random books. Right. <laughs> it has been a while. There's something to be said for the for the classic format, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and I really enjoy doing the variations on it uh, and the different things that we've done. And, I, you know, I think it makes the show more interesting to do. Hopefully it makes it more interesting to listen to sometimes. Uh, but every once in a while, just going back to the classic format is, is you know, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like being home again. Yep, I agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this because uh, I think we have some some interesting material to cover. For yeah, this we one. definitely have two very different books, and very <laughs> you know the random format is is certainly at play. I don't know how random the picks were, but the randomness of the choices definitely exists. Right. So I guess we we should jump right into it, right? Unless sure. you got anything else you want to talk about. Ah, nah, we we <laughs> we shot the shit for what like an hour before we we got going. Stuff the the listeners will never hear. So yes. I'm 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 ready and raring to go at this point. All right. Well, so my book today is The Marvel and it's from April of 1978. It's the relatively new book the, uh, of the two today. And it's Captain America and the Falcon number 220. Uh and that's kind of a misnomer because the Falcon Unless I missed something, doesn't even appear in this book. Uh, right. <laughs> and and it, it's we're, we're preciously close to the point or uh, where where his name is going to be removed from the uh, title, and it's just going to become I, Captain America. I was just going to ask you that because I, I I thought that was the case, but I wasn't entirely this sure. This is number two twenty, and just off the top of my head, I think he comes. I think his last one on the on the cat on the head headline is two twenty two. Because at this point, you know, at this point, we, we went through the Steve Englehart era with the uh, Secret Empire. Then after that, we had uh, a Red Skull. You know, Captain America was disillusioned, then he became Nomad. Then the Red Skull uh, revealed the Falcon was kind of a sleeper agent for him all along. And then we had the Jack Kirby era. 
and then the Jack Kirby that was that was the Jack Kirby solo era, which was I, I think it's enjoyable as heck, but it's batshit crazy. Now let me ask you, did you know that off the top of your head, or are you looking at something on? No, that? this I know this off the top of my head. Damn, dude, because you called it perfectly. Because two twenty two is that one. It's got one of my favorite wacky covers. Uh, it's the one where Cap is being assaulted by the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> and, uh, Abe and Lincoln Vampire Cap's... Hunter is coming after Cap. <laughs> that is the last one uh, to be bannered Captain America and the Falcon. The very next issue, 223, um, is Cap. I, You know, I just got this comic not long ago, uh, within the past year. He's being assaulted by... Oh, animus, man, on a quick animus, glance, which almost I, looks like anus. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I, you know, I need to look into animus a little bit more to see something like what's up with that character. Because I believe animus is, I think it's, it's it's a Freudian, I think. I may be way out of my, I'm definitely out of my depth here. But I think it's a Freudian term, and it's the female portion of the psyche that's kind of masculine. But animus, oh, as presented in the comics, I think is a female that turns into animus, but I yes. think animus is a male. Yes. Oh my God. Where where did the, this this character appeared not long ago in like you know quote unquote modern day? Well, I, I believe uh, the character appeared in an issue of Deadpool that we did on our Deadpool. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe uh, that was score it. episode. Yeah, because yeah. I I know I had seen the character in something that was fairly recent. Yeah. Okay. It, it's cool because two twenty three is an awesome i want to say that's a tom palmer i think it's an awesome cover except for animus animus is just really weird looking strange it almost reminds me of that oh yeah it it almost reminds me of a of a cross between um who was that big-headed freak in spider-man oh oh, i know who you mean the mind worm mind worm it's like a cross between the mind worm and the hybrid from uh from rom who was like a hybrid oh yeah yeah that was the one with the x half Dire Wraith half, yeah. He was yeah. a mutant Dire Wraith. Yeah, yeah. Freaky looking thing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah but you got to love it. <laughs> I, you know, and, and oh, that's God. one of the things, to be honest with you, just bringing it back to this book. Uh, you know, we, we started talking about this a little bit before we started recording uh, the episode, and this is a freaky story. Just, just the whole premise is kind of freaky, and yet it makes me chuckle and enjoy it. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit more as we go along on it. Or actually, we'll, I'll give a quick synopsis and then we'll talk about it. So the, the cover, which is by uh, Gil Kane and I believe Dan Atkins, uh, shows Captain America being pummeled by a giant Captain America uh, with you know your, your typical nameless uh, drone soldiers behind uh kind of doing some crowd control, it looks like. And the giant Captain America says, you're good, Captain America, a human fighting machine, but you have met but you met your death the day you tackled the colossal Ameritro- Ameridroid. Uh, and it's, it's, I don't know, it's kind of typical Gil Kane. We have some, some real Gil Kane typical, you know, things. The position of the Ameridroid kind of squatting down, facing him. Uh, Captain America kind of flying backwards, from the impact of the shot with the Ameridroid's shield. Uh, very, very, very typical Gil Kane. Not the most photorealistic type thing, but as with most Gil Kane, I just kind of love it. Now, who did you say you thought the inker was? I think Dan Adkins. Um, according to Mike, uh, make, you know, Mike's Amazing World, um, it's Klaus Jansen, which... I can see that. Okay, and I will. It's back funny because I'm a uh, mark for Gil Kane. Love me. 
I'm sorry. I, I, said, I will accept that whatever Mike says is is more accurate than my thought. Well, I I I'll confess I'm not as familiar. I mean, I know who Dan Adkins is. I, he's not a, a style I can pick out though, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Whereas Klaus Jansen, I typically can, and and I see the Jansen. It's just weird because I'm you know I'm a big fan of Gil Kane, but I in this particular one I don't think I would have been able to pick out. That it was Gil Kane. I see what you're talking about with the crouching Ameridroid, though. That is very Kane-ish. I just don't think I would have, you know, with without knowing that it was him, I don't think I'd have been able to pick out that it was him, if you know what I mean. But that I think that's typical for me a lot with uh, with Klaus Jansen inks, because I, you know, I, I like the guy, but I do think he tends to kind of bury the the penciler a lot of times with his own style. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just seeing this cover, because I, you know, I, I'm I'm quickly cr- uh, closing in on uh on having a complete collection of uh of cap you know of the of the run that i want essentially and this was an issue i acquired not long ago but i hadn't read it yet um i'm not real familiar with this particular uh era of cap so i'm, I'm anxious to read it but when i so you know when you gave me the issue number I, I wasn't able to envision what the cover looked like i wasn't sure which issue it was but when i pulled up the 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 uh, cover image to see which issue it was. I got really excited because while I'd never read this issue before, I knew who the Ameridroid was from when he comes back in issue 262, mm-hmm. which is right at the very beginning of the um, J.M. Demetrius and Mike Zek run. And that's essentially, that's my cap, if you know what I mean, because that's where I kind of got into cap uh, hot and heavy as a kid was during the, the Zek run. Uh, and I love that stuff. So I, I had, you know, kind of a familiarity with, with the character from that, but not never having read, you know, his backstory or, you know, this this actually turns out to kind of be the origin story of the Ameridroid, which I, I found I found interesting. Yeah, it's definitely it's it's an interesting concept, uh, but it's like I said, it's a little batch crazy. Oh, it it is. Yeah, it's super silly, but I think that's why I gave it such a pass because I had some nostalgia for the character. The Ameridroid, this is probably going to sound really weird, but you know what I really always liked about the Ameridroid, uh, especially again, if you look at the cover to, to 262, that was that was my intro to the character. On the cover of 262, it, you have the Ameridroid who, you know, for anybody who's not, you know, any listener who's not familiar with this character, the Ameridroid essentially, he's Captain America. He looks exactly like Captain America. He is Captain America. He's just like 12 feet tall. He's he's like a giant Captain America. That's all he is. And so on the cover of 262, you've got the Ameridroid standing in what looks a hell of a lot like um, the flying bathtub of the, of the Fantastic Four. They're up in the sky, and he's holding broken captain america over his head like he's gonna i don't know like he's gonna dash him to the ground or something like that as i recall the cover anyway and when i first saw that as a kid it reminded me of when i would play with like my superheroes with my mego guys and stuff it's like you know all the migos were essentially the same size but then you had like some of those super migos so you had your your standard migos which were what like six to nine inches tall, something like that. But then like the super Migos were like 12 to 15 inches tall. So, you know, so they were bigger and that's what it reminded me of. It was like having, you know, your standard figures, but then there's like this one freakishly tall one, you know, <laughs> that's kind of what mm-hmm. it reminded me of. And I, I know it's weird, but that, you know what I mean? That's just, Absolutely. You know. <laughs> 
I, I think I was more accepting of this concept back when this was new because I, I ate this up when it was new. Uh, and I think I was more accepting of it. I still love it, but I, now I find it to be more kitschy than anything else. Uh, but I right. think I accepted it more just because at that time I was accepting conte- uh, concepts like Awesome Andy the Android uh, or uh, right. the Super Adaptoid. And this just kind of fell into place with that. Right. So I didn't really have a problem at that point responding. Anyway, uh, so to get into this story, it is written by Don Glutt. And the art is by Sal Buscema, John Tartag, and Mike Esposito. Uh, George Russos does the color. Carol Lay, I don't know if it's wiped away or if it's her name is Lay or if there's other letters that are wiped away, is the letterer. Roy Thomas is the editor, and Archie Goodwin is the consulting editor. i got to respond to him. Oh, you're right. She's making more work for you in the editing. I know. I know. This isn't too, too big. Whatever. And, and as I say that, it'll get worse. So the, the story opens up, and we had a close-up splash page of Cap with, you know, one of those old-time uh, mind transfer devices, you know, where they put the thing over your head. <laughs> it's a close-up of his face and it, with one of those, you know, kind of a more modern-looking version of that exact thing uh, on his head, and he's sweating and in pain, and... Uh, and he's being, you know, told, uh, you know, you can fight, but you're not going to be able to break free. And then we get to our, uh, we, you know, we, we get to our flashback kind of situation. And he's being held captive by a guy named Decker, who uh, we're going to, Lyle Decker is the guy's name, and he was a special effects wizard. Uh, so I guess he's kind of the earlier version of Mysterio. Yeah, that's funny you say that, because that's the first thing I thought of as well. I didn't realize that both Spider-Man and Captain America both had villains that were special effects wizards. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't know if this is an attempt to work something in that actually existed in the Golden Age, because I'm totally unfamiliar with this, or if this is totally a retcon. Certainly the story we get here is a retcon, uh, but... Uh, you know, it's he he may or may not have existed back in the uh, in the 40s. I don't know. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know so you know, with, with Cap as a uh, as a captive, uh, he decides to tell his story. So you know, he's he's in a Nazi submarine where uh, the Red Skull is is beating on him for failing to uh, have killed Captain America uh, and and allowed he was supposed to sabotage the Captain America film serial. Which is, you know, kind of a little meta that they're they're making that serial, which exists in our world, part of theirs. Uh, he was supposed to sabotage that and failed to do so, uh, and therefore glorified the Skull's most hated enemy. So, after beating him up, they they uh, torpedo him out of the uh, boat, which I would think in and of itself would kill you, but it doesn't, and he gets caught in a uh, fisherman's net, uh, fishing boat net, and brought back up where he's nursed to health. Uh, and then he's hanging out in a bar and, and hiring other uh, disassociated criminals uh, to work as his uh, flunkies, uh, although, you know, with, with money that he had saved aside and, and not let the Red Skull know about. So, you know, now, I want to stop you right there for sure. just a second, just just to point something out. Now, this is still, I'm presuming, at a time where they were still more or less operating with the old Stan Lee adage that every issue is somebody's first issue. Now, this is far from my first issue of Captain America, but I was totally unfamiliar with this era um, and this particular story. I'd never read it before. So jumping in here, 
Um, I'll be honest, I was kind of lost at the very beginning of this because on the second page, it, it looks for all intents and, and there's no header to tell you when this is taking place. So I'm assuming this is modern day, which it actually is. But you've got Decker. He goes into this thing where he says, you know, he's basically continuing a, a recap. And he says, uh, as I tell you what happened, he goes, after the supposed death of motion picture special effects wizard Lyle Decker, speaking of himself, and then there's a, an editor's note that says, again, last issue. So I'm like, wait, what? So then he goes into the flashback, but the flashback looks, by all appearances from the art, that this is a flashback to World War II, which it is. Mm-hmm. So I'm But at this point, it's this, only, but at like, this point, you gotta remember. Scott, that's only at this point. It's only thirty some odd years ago. Right. But so he, he was a younger was like, man when he was in World right. War II, and now he's you know he's gray haired or whatever. So you figured now he's probably in his late fifties, early sixties. Right. Yeah. So I was having trouble just figuring out: is he talking about something that? I mean, are they recapping last issue, which is kind of what the note makes it sound like, or is he recapping something that happened to him? back in the 40s, which it turns out it's the latter. But it was just a little confusing until you start to put it all together, exactly how far back is he flashing, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I think they could have been a little bit more clear in the story that, you know, he was recounting something that happened to him 20 years ago, as opposed to something that happened literally in the very last issue. Because, you know, back during this time, that would happen a lot where, the first couple of pages or maybe sometimes the first couple of panels of each new issue would recap what happened last issue in case you missed that issue. And that's kind of what I thought was happening at first until I came to realize that, no, he's bringing us up to speed on basically his entire backstory from 20 years ago. But it was just really muddled at first. And and you kind of had to work that. Since you're doomed anyway, I might as well tell you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, real quick, I did look it up, and uh, his first appearance, Lyle Decker's first appearance, was two issues prior to this. So he is a retcon character. Not he's not being, uh, you know, he's not a, a golden age character. He's being retconned to be a golden age character. Okay, which which makes more make sense to me, to be honest. With you. But I think it would be really cool if he had any golden age appearance, even if it had nothing to do with the story. You know, if he was the mad director who. You know who attacked Captain America and Bucky back in 1943, and and had a you know a, 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 a totally nonsensical one issue appearance, and now he was revived <laughs> by Don Glut to be in this. That would be cool, right? But I'm okay with it. Just you know, just the same. Uh, so his so he talks about after he hired this uh you know the the flunkies, uh he he had started this plan to uh to to transfer you know captain america's physical abilities into this android but his plans were somewhat derailed by the fact that uh captain america was thrown into the english channel off of the exploding ship that zemo or the exploding plane whatever that that you know the one that at this time had killed bucky uh in theoretically uh but he sent in divers to take him out of the uh English Channel, uh, because his his super soldier serum had saved him, and then he he brought him aboard his own, I guess, submarine, uh, where he let his plan be known, and that he was going to transfer his abilities, uh, and then Captain America was able to actually escape. He put on his his kept his Steve Rogers clothes, which very weirdly were kept 
inside of his shield somehow. How you could fight with the shield and have that in there, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but because he put on his Steve Rogers clothes, people, you know, it made him less descript and less stand out less. So he was able to kind of get out and get onto a, a is that a biplane? No, it's just a prop plane. Yeah. Uh, but he was shot out of the sky with, Decker's nerve gas, which was meant to uh, attack Bull as well, and he went into back into the water where he stayed in suspended animation until Avengers number four. So it's a little bit of a strange retcon that they're trying to put it in between the time the Zemo plane went down and Avengers number four, but they do. Uh, how, do how do you feel about that? I, I think it's kind of cheap, to be honest with you. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not a fan of that. If, if you know that that's that's playing a little bit too much with the history for something that's not really that significant. If it was for something particularly significant, I can deal with it. But this is just to create a supervillain. Why you know why why they had to have that whole scene? It almost feels like filler a little bit. It could have been that he made this plan, uh, and that Captain America was shot down, and that he had to wait his whatever 30 years for revenge. That would it would have been more simple to just do it that way. Now, accepting the entire fact, because I, I think it has to be pointed out, accepting the fact that Cap's entire, you know, being, you know, trying to thwart Zemo's plan and, and the plane exploding and him falling into the ice, that that is a retcon. <laughs> accepting that fact, mm-hmm. um, I don't like them retconning that further, because this whole thing of, well, we saw it happen, so we rescued you, and then we had a whole other mission that we've never talked about till now, but amazingly, you wound up right back in the ice in the same... It's just, it, it strains credibility past the breaking point to me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the only thing I liked about this sequence was from the moment they rescued him, I kept thinking, okay, then how the hell did he wind up back in the ice and in the same outfit? Because as soon as they rescue him, he puts the Captain America... Uh, suit back on, you know, with the mask and everything, and seemingly discards Steve Rogers' outfit, you know, uh, Steve Rogers' army uniform. So I kept thinking, how is he going to wind up where he needs to be continuity-wise? And they and Gluck pulls it out. Or, actually, I think his name is pronounced Glute, but I'm not sure. But anyway, how how is he going to wind up back there? So that part of it, how he worked that out, I kind of liked, even though the overall retcon, I thought, frankly, was kind of stupid. The only other thing about this that I thought was kind of interesting is that now it more syncs up with movie continuity because now Cap goes down in a plane into the ice like he does in the movie as opposed to just, you know, falls into the ice. But mm-hmm. that that's, you know, that's very weak because overall I really didn't like this retcon. And I didn't like the fact that now it may just be uh, what's his name? Decker's supposition but the the story seems to imply that it wasn't so much the super soldier serum as it was decker's zombie gas or whatever the hell it was called that actually made cap fall into suspended animation that i really didn't like because i like it being the the super soldier serum yeah i I prefer that as well i you know i I, like i said i kind of felt like it was a little bit of a cheat and it was a little cheap and i think you could have Fill those pages just as easily without having that particular aspect of the story. I like the fact that he was laying in wait for all these years, but you didn't necessarily have to have him have that actual battle with Captain America early on. And and right. oh, and, and conveniently, apparently, the nerve gas also made Captain America totally uh, have no memory of that. Right. Anyway, uh, so then we come back to what is then current time, and we see the giant Ameridroid standing next to the... Uh, sitting cap 
Uh, Decker puts himself into the other brain transfer chair uh, and a uh, bazoom cap, and he clearly feels a lot of pain. Uh, We cut to uh, Captain America's guest, uh, Miss Veda. Is she... uh, It's a subplot with the corporation, uh, and she's she's there. Jarvis is bringing her some things, and she's talking to a very... uh, villainous looking dude uh and then we cut back again to uh captain america where he's waking up from uh actually we we don't even know if he's waking up uh we just kind of see him with the head thing on and we see decker uh his body clearly with no life in it but the ameridroid starts moving and then we see captain america show some uh some you know that he's awake and he says good god the ameridroid moving breathing alive uh (laughs) And and the the henchmen say, leader, is that you? And the Ameridroid says, do not be deceived by my new color scheme. I am Decker, but I am more. I am the vanguard of a new world order. Today, the new order strikes. And then uh, next issue, awesome is the Ameridroid. Still to come this issue, a special Falcon featurette. So there is a a short Falcon story uh, written by Scott Edelman and drawn by Bob Budiansky. Uh, And it's kind of... It's, I mean, it's filler. It's a, it's a whatever, five or six page thing where uh, he fights this really weirdly costumed uh, crossbow guy who tries to take Red Wing uh, captive. And Falcon dresses as a, like, puts a, a, an overcoat and a hat so he looks like a bum and catches the guy off guard and beats the crap out of him and lets Red Wing free. And that's about it for that. So I guess it is technically still Captain America and the Falcon in this issue because of the little short story. Um, right. But, you know, that's that really wasn't my purpose and we want to get off on that other just to, <laughs> we can give it just a quick discussion. Uh, so, like I said, I think the story is a cheat to go into, you know, that time era that it does the way it does. Uh, and I think the story is kind of dopey with the whole Ameridroid thing and <laughs> everything. One of the things I do like, and I think you could have played on really well if you went into motivations of Decker, is he he has reasons to hate Captain America and the Red Skull. And I think you could have made it really interesting for like a three-way battle somehow. Right. You know, get a, get a, you know, for for lack of a better word, the Mexican standoff going with the three of them. Play the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I, I kind of think that, I don't know if they eventually did that sometime in the future that I didn't see. You know, there are errors of comics that I have a blank time on, but uh, I think that would have been cool if they did that. Uh, and like I said, maybe they did get to that eventually. Uh, but just on the basis of this story alone, like I said, it's kind of freaky, uh, but I enjoy it. I think it, it, it's it's fun in the way that comics used to be that I don't really see too much anymore, uh, you know, which which is what drives us back to the old stuff. I think some of the artwork, you know, I think Sal Buscema was kind of doing really well at this point. I think this, this you know, maybe his heyday. Uh, some of the inking is, a, I think, a little inconsistent, but I think the artwork is strong overall. And like I said, I think the story is cool, so I kind of like this one. What, what was your, your initial thoughts other than the cheat? Other than the cheat, I, I liked this because I, well, I mean, I liked it a lot for nostalgia reasons because, like I said, I knew who the Ameridroid was. Uh, I remembered him and always thought he was kind of cool. So to get the backstory on him and find out, okay, exactly how did he come to exist? How did Decker wind up inside of him and why uh, was interesting. Um, and I, I mean, as as much as I didn't care for the retcon, uh, you know, I, I'll forgive a lot of it just because I, I didn't, I did enjoy the story. As you said, this is just good, fun comics. The way I remember comics as a kid, 
So it didn't have to make a hell of a lot of sense. It was just it was entertaining and it it moves along, which I like a lot. You know, it's it, it's slam bang and it, it really moves. So, I mean, I, I enjoyed it for what it is. It's it's not terribly deep or anything like that. And it's a little it's a little goofy, but uh, it was fun. I did. I really don't know who this lady is, though. I was kind of thrown by her. I was really picking my brain trying to see was I familiar with this person and just didn't remember her or what. But I, I really don't. She looks like uh, she looks like Agatha Harkness's like angry daughter or something. I don't know who, <laughs> who the hell she's supposed to be. So. And uh, I was also trying to figure out who this like Lex Luthor looking like dude is here. I didn't I didn't recognize him either. Okay, well she is Veda is her name, and I just quickly looked her up on the Marvel Wiki. Ella? V E D A, not Elevator. Uh, <laughs> the mysterious Veda was an agent of the corporation and worked closely with Eugene Klieger Stivak. I don't know if that's the guy who what was his name. Klieger, yeah, it is. Yeah, because okay. when he's talking to her, when he signs off, he says Klieger out. She contracted the Night Flyer to kill a target under shield protection. When Captain America and the Falcon stopped the Night Flyer, Vida and the Corporation turned their attention to eliminating Captain America. Vida befriended Steve Rogers, who was at the time trying to recall his memories prior to becoming America's super soldier. That's right, they did like a Finding Steve Rogers storyline that ran through. Vida told Steve that she knew that he was Captain America because her mother was Agent R., who was present the night of Operation Rebirth. Her mother had told her so. She also told him that she had a huge crush on him and wanted to help him find secrets of his past. Unbeknownst to Captain America, while pretending to try and prove her friendship, Vita also made several attempts on Steve's life. However, after several failures, the corporation came to consider Vita a liability. They also feared that Vita was having mixed emotions about killing Steve Rogers. As a, as a result, she was atomized by Klieger. Her ashes were ordered to be disposed <laughs> of by his secretary. So she first appeared in issue 213, and she died in issue 225. So that's Aww. her. And then Stevak, Klieger Stevak, uh, first appeared in 213, and then apparently died in Hulk 232. And is that the Captain America crossover issue? Maybe. Yes, I think it is. The outfit that Decker has <clears throat> through this issue seems so familiar to me. And I was going to make a joke about, you know, does the stranger know that this guy is wearing his clothes? But I looked up the stranger, and it's not the stranger's Wasn't outfit. So I'm not sure. There's a guy in the Nova series, the original Nova series, called like the Devastator or something like that. Uh, maybe. And, yeah. And who had a similar color scheme and a similar uniform. And I'm trying to see if I can look at it quickly. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, his outfit definitely is ringing a bell. I just can't quite place it. I mean, it does look somewhat like, uh, like say, early Doc Ock. Throw, throw like a big collar on it, and it kind of looks like Doc Ock. But yeah, now that you say that about Nova, that that does kind of that does kind of ring a bell. I, I, I and I think I may be getting the name wrong because I'm doing trying to do a quick uh, wiki search on that or a, a Google search rather, and I'm not finding it. Uh, but I think there was a character in Nova, and he, and he was he had like kind of a he had a uniform like this, but his face looked more similar to uh, Mephisto, only like kind of a bluish color. The character I'm thinking of, but but the costume itself looked similar. If I'm thinking of the right guy, and I'd, I'd have to do a little search, and I, I think it's gonna you know take me too long to look it up for in the show. Right. Uh, but if somebody listening has information on it, by all means. 
let us know. Yeah, that that is kind of tickling my brain, but it's been a long time since oh, I've maybe done it's a, the corruptor, a, a note. Not the devastate. Now I'm corruptor. Thinking, that uh, kind of sounds familiar. Try and quick search. Uh, that's him. But, the, but the, that's who yeah. I'm thinking of. But the uniform is not the same as I. Uh, yeah, his is more like who's that guy? Daredevil, Marauder in Daredevil. Was that his name? Yeah. 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 Well, at least know, I figured out who I was thinking of, for what it's worth. Right. <laughs> I was wrong about his uh, his his actual uh, appearance similarity to this guy, but that's who I was. Anyway, <laughs> tangents abound. Um, was there ever an explanation for why the Ameridroid was a giant freak? Why why didn't he just create? You know, just uh, another Captain America and then become Captain America. Why did he make him a giant android? I, that I never understood. I mean, granted, he's a cool visual and all, but is there, was there an actual reason gave? That, well, why I, he, I think you're going to go. I think you got to go with the fact that he had some sort of psychological uh, fixation on Captain America. That's why he made it look like Captain America and that he made him giant like that in the thoughts that he would be more powerful, fearsome. Right. Uh, well, that reminds me of one of my favorite lines in the whole thing. When he actually winds up in the body of the Ameridroid, you've got uh, you've got Cap going, uh, the Ameridroid moving, breathing, alive. And then, <laughs> and then in the body of the Ameridroid, you've got Decker going, indeed, and possessing the amplified strength and perso- uh, personal magnetism of Captain America himself. I love that. It's just uh, which, which could also go to the psychological fixation he has with captain america the personal magnetism right you know it's uh i i seem to remember and and my memory is you know this i read this a long long time ago but i do seem to remember that i think the way this ends up resolving is the emerdroid kind of comes to his senses and and, and realizes that this is just batshit crazy and then he just becomes like this sad moping giant captain america <laughs> and I just, I just remember that being kind of funny. Like, like, what do you do now? <laughs> you know, you're stuck in this giant body. Although in in you know the Marvel Earth, that, that wouldn't make you that unusual. Like Hank Pym and even Clint Barton walking around giant all the time. Right. So it, you, I guess you all can right. get away with it. I haven't read ahead. I, mean, I didn't read the next issue, but just taking a peek at it here, it's interesting to note that that except for uh, the artists, everything changes. So you've got a new writer. You've got uh, David Anthony Kraft is called co-scenarist, scenarist. So everybody changes. So yeah, I, I wonder, you know, does does that change the nature of the story? But it looks. I'm, I'm gonna have to read this now because it does look cool with uh, with Cap versus the Ameritrade. It looks like there's a lot of action in this. I and think it you looks should like probably Ameritrade start it. If you're going to do a read, you know, uh, any kind of reading project beyond just like an issue or two, I think you should start a little earlier. Start from the point when uh, when Jack Kirby dropped off, which is probably issue two. And then I'm not far from that. I, I've been doing a read through. Um, you know, I, I'm still working on my Marvel read through, but I've been thinking about like seriously dropping, uh, like like paring it down to like core titles. Cap's definitely going to be one of them because Cap's one I've always wanted to do a complete read through on anyway. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably just start narrowing down to more specific titles. But yeah, I, I love this stuff. I really do. How far into Captain America this, this, are you? Like 108, 109, oh, something. So, so I'm still. I'm pretty, yeah, yeah. But what I what I may do is just pare it down to like you know like very core like Cap, uh, Thor, Iron Man. 
Hulk, maybe. I don't know. Although Hulk's kind of hit an arrow where I'm like, Ugh. Well, Captain America, unless my memory is wrong, uh, Captain America will hit that. For, uh, I think in, in the 220s, or in the 120s, uh, 120s until like 140s, there's about a 20-issue run there where it just seems to be meandering along. Uh, right. And then in, in the 140s, it picks up again. They have... Uh, you know, some Hydra stuff going on, and Kingpin is in there, and, you know, there's, there's some interesting stuff, and then you you get to the Secret Empire, then you get to Jack, to Jack Kirby, which is just batshit crazy, but take it for what it is, it's a lot of fun. Well, I think one thing that would probably help keep me motivated is uh, I, I, I now more than ever want to do a reread of all the, uh, the, the Mike Zek era, and... Even though I'm I'm really fond of that stuff, and that's where I got into Cap and and all of that, and I you know I, I have you know really good memories of that. I didn't have the complete run as a kid. You know, I just had to catch issues here and there off the newsstand and that sort of thing. And now I have them all uh, as I've been you know really concentrating on my Captain America collection. So. I, I've been itching to do, you know, a, a reread, but now, you know, a complete reread of all that. So, yeah, I might just do, I might just narrow it down. Maybe I'll just do Captain America and just do a read through of that because I, I, I really do like Cap, and I've always wanted to do more of a read than I ever got to do as a kid. So, yeah, yeah I would, I would think, you know, for me, I, I, I don't think I can do, and I've tried on occasion, but I don't think I can do an across the board read through, which is kind of what you've been doing. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think I, I have to break it down to okay I'm going to do a read through on Captain America now and then I'm going to do a read through on the Hulk and then I'm going to do a read through on Thor or whatever you know whichever books in whatever order uh, and then just you know veering off of it sometimes to do the crossovers but otherwise right. kind of stick with the uh, the read through that I'm doing already right yeah it was in the beginning it was easy because you know of course Marvel didn't have that many titles starting out but yeah as as it keeps expanding and expanding it makes it hard only because then it becomes difficult to remember what the hell was going on in this title you know while I was reading these six other titles and yeah so I I think just doing a straight read through of you know a title at a time might be the easier way to go so I don't know but in one way or the other it's been a lot of fun I still enjoy it yeah, no, I could, and I, I would too. But uh, I also, to me, there there is a certain amount of nostalgic fun in the era that you're getting to to some of the expanded lesser titles that he came up with. I mean, things like you know Red Wolf, Shanna, uh, you know, stuff that right. lasted five or six issues and went away. Uh, that I, I would I would hate to throw those off my list. Actually, I, I would keep them in there right. if I was doing a full read through. Although right. it just makes it all the more daunting. <laughs> But that's fun too because then you discover things you might not have have known about. Or what's what's often interesting for me is then to place things in the proper chronological order and discover that you know oh the I never realized like these happened at the same time or these two titles you know these two books were on the stands at about the same you know that sort of thing and, and getting more of a, a, a true historical perspective on things. Right. Yeah. I I, I could see that too. So. What do you think about the artwork in this one? Well, I'm looking at this from some. I know, you know, full disclosure. I'm looking at a uh, uh, PDF first of all, so I'm looking at it digitally. But I'm also looking at it from some form of reprint, and I'm not sure where this is reprinted from. It doesn't say. Um, this may be off of like the the Marvel site or something, because instead of having an indicia, it just gives a copyright 2014 Marvel uh, Marvel characters incorporated and all that. So. You know, maybe this is one of Marvel's official digital copies. I really don't know where I got this from. 
So it's a little too clean, if you know what I mean. And it, and it loses that charm of, you know, the old shitty newsprint, which to me is just how comics from this era should look, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also, you know, one of my, you know, I have so many read through projects going on right now. This is why if anybody's like, God, he's still on the Marvel read through. Well, yeah, this is why, because I have like umpteen going on at the same time. But I'm doing a read through of um, Jim Aparo Batman right now. But I'm reading it through reprints, and while they're beautiful, they also lose a lot of that 70s charm because now they're clean and bright and you know all of that. So it, it, it loses something somehow, and that's how I feel about this. I, I like the art, and there's nothing you know there's nothing wrong with it per se, except that it just it doesn't look like what it is. It doesn't look like a comic book from 1978. So it loses something to me. Uh, if we'd had the time before we got started, I, I wish I had just gone ahead and dug the physical issue out because I actually have this book. And it'd be interesting to, to look at it that way, you know, from the actual physical copy uh, as opposed to this, you know, nice, clean uh, digital reprinting of it. Because I think when you clean it up to this degree, not only does it lose some of that charm, I, I think it kind of accentuates some of the the I don't want to say weaknesses of the art. That's not quite what I mean. But you know what I you know what I'm getting at? It, it, it just kind of accentuates the fact that it, it is from a bygone era where they could get away with with you know not a lot of background detail and you know the colors were kind of simplistic. That sort of because it was just going to wind up on shitty newsprint paper anyway. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. so it, it I don't know just. I guess the easiest way to say it is that it just looks funny when it's this clear, when it's this pristine. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to judge it that way. But I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with the art. I do think the the weight, the uh, inks are kind of weak, and I'm not sure why that is. I, I I think for one, as you said, I think it's inconsistent. I'm not familiar enough with uh, Tortaglioni or uh, Esposito to be able to tell you like which pages are whose or which panels are whose or whatever. Um, but it's clear to me that it does switch up from page to page. Like, you know, there's some pages you can tell is one art style, you know, you know, one inking style and there's other pages you can tell is the other, but I'm not sure whose is whose. Whoever has the thicker line of the two, that's the one I prefer better. The one with the thinner line, um, looks rushed and unfinished to me. I think the thicker line is Tarte. I'm not hundred percent sure of it, but I think so. Yeah. I yeah, can give you, give you a real, really, quick, uh, really quick story about that. Back some point in the 1970s, and I can't tell you exactly when, it was probably before, and I was familiar with the name uh, John Tartaglioni, uh, and familiar with it just because I had seen it in comics, you know, that, that he had inked some things, but I couldn't have told you which books he inked or anything like that. And I recall being at my house with either one of my friends or with my cousin, and we called the Marvel offices on Madison Avenue, to try and see if we could talk to some of the creators, just because we thought it would be cool. Uh, and t- I tell you, they, they were great back then, because they, they were like, oh, let me see if anybody's around. And we spoke to Marie Severin, and then he got on the line, John Tartag. And I, you know, I said, who is this? And he said, John Tartag. I said, oh, that's you're the same as John Tartag Leone. And he got, like, all annoyed <laughs> at me. <laughs> he was, no, Tartag. <laughs> oh, and, he, and he is the same guy. But he got, like, all annoyed. And I'm, to this day, I'm still not exactly sure why. Yeah, I was just going to ask, I wonder why that, that's funny. 
you would think he'd be impressed that you that you realized he was the same guy. That's that's weird. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you too much about the conversation beyond that because the only two people I remember specifically speaking to were him and Marie Severin. But it was, <laughs> was still the pretty next cool. Thing that, you heard click. <laughs> it was still pretty cool that they put them on the line, though. You know, they must have said, "Oh, right, we have, yeah, no, we have no. some young kids here who are calling up to say hello. Does anybody want to, uh, you know, does anybody want to talk to them?" <laughs> How the hell did you get this number? <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. I, I, I can't. I can't imagine it being that way today. No. You know, I just, well, for one, you'd end up going through a switchboard and wind up, you know, talking to somebody in India or something more than likely. So. <laughs> Plus, they wouldn't be at the offices anyway. In these things, I don't right. think any, anybody works out of a bullpen. That's yeah. That's very true. <laughs> that is cool, though. Yeah. So, <laughs> my John Tartag story. Who do? What's that? Is he, is he still around? No, I looked him up. He passed away in the somewhere between 2000 and 2010. Uh, he was 82 years old when he passed away. So. Now, the author of this, um, Don Glute, or Glut, I'm, I'm still not sure. I think I, you're I, right. I think it's probably Glute, but I always pronounced it. See, I always thought it was Glut, because I remember him best as he was the author of the Empire Strikes Back novelization, which I just devoured as a kid when that book came out, because it came out in advance of the movie. So I always knew him from that. Um, I follow him on Facebook, and he's actually a hell of a fun guy to, to follow if you get the chance to follow him on there. So I know he's still around. And uh, as I've learned you know, over the years, he wrote a lot more comics than I ever thought that he did because I always think of him first as a novelist and, and you know, thought he just did like a handful of comics. But I think it's actually the other way around. I think he started in comics and then worked his way into other media because he was also big on um, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. He was a writer for that. And, and some other animated stuff, I do believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he didn't have a huge uh, a, a huge bibliography. They don't give a, a name to this dude in the in the Falcon backup story, do they? I think they give him just a a, a, uh, a given name. Um, yeah, oh yeah, that's Mort- right, yeah, Mortimer Freebish. So they they treat him as a, <laughs> as a mort. No, no, is, no offense. He is a yeah, yeah, they, is. but they treat him that that way literally right from the start. He is one snappy dresser. Yeah, that that costume is. Just I like, like that. Essentially, his costume is a giant arrow pointing at his crotch. That that's that's his. <laughs> his the the artwork is interesting because uh, it looks like uh, one of your favorites to me. It looks similar to like Nasser. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's different for sure. I don't. I'm trying to remember. Isn't isn't Bob Budiansky more of an? He's more known as an inker than a penciler, though, isn't he? Or am I am I wrong? I, I'm, you know, I know his name, but I'm not really all that familiar with him. So let me see. He was an inker on Indiana Jones, I thought. He's he's listed just doing a quick search for him. He's Bob Budiansky is an American comic book writer editor and penciler best known for his work on marvel's transformers he also created the marvel character sleep oh, and, okay. and wrote all 33 issues that's where i know it from okay because i've done you know so many sleepwalker issues with hero uh so he's not you know he, I, I do find that a lot of the writers that uh get well known in comics at one time were aspiring artists and really not all that bad you know right pretty decent artists but for whatever reason couldn't make it in in the art field uh and and went on to be a writer i mean jimmy palmiotti is a pretty good artist and he does mostly writing now uh you know and there's a lot of them. even i remember reading you know steve engelhardt originally started out as, as a, an artist and i think he was working in uh, neil adams studio before he uh right before he broke through as a writer 
So, you know, a lot of these guys are, I, I think, what's his name, too? Uh, Brian Michael Bendis, I think, had intentions of being an artist but settled in as a writer. Yeah. Every once in a while, I'll stumble across some old back issue where there's uh, art by somebody I think of, you know, primarily or in some cases exclusively as a writer. I know that there was some issues of, the hell was it, Super Villain Team Up or something like that, where Shooter did the art. And I'm like, what? You know, just stuff like that. I, I must be thinking of something else because I'm looking at Budiansky's credits on Mike's Amazing World, and I don't see a single issue of uh, Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. So I'm, I must be thinking of somebody else. Maybe I can tell you it's. Uh, I, I I like the art in this story overall. I, I think it, it probably could do a little bit better storytelling wise. Uh, right. It's it's a little, but you know, it's also like a five five ish, five page story or however many pages I didn't really count. Uh, so you try to squeeze a lot in. So I think it's hard to really tell your story, you know, in in such a short period. So I, I may be placing too high of a standard on it to even criticize it on that. Uh, but it, it's Dan, I, I like the fact that Danny it's a little Bolinati. different. Hmm? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Dan, Danny Bolinati was who I was thinking of. So, yeah, so, kind of, sort of similar names, but that's who I was thinking of. All right. For what so, it's <laughs> any, Anything else that we want to hit on with this issue before we move on and rate it? Um, no, I think that's pretty much all I got. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it enough that I, I want to keep going with it now. You know, I, I want to see, at, at the very least, I want to know how the very next issue winds up with the with the fight between uh, the fight between Cap and uh, and the Ameridroid. Because mm-hmm. I, I didn't realize it until I looked it up, but that uh, that cover for the next issue, uh, I'm not sure who the artist is on it, but I, I love that cover. That's just it's always been one of my favorite uh, covers of Cat. It's uh, oh, it's uh, Gil Kane again as the pencil. It says Tony Dizanigo. Okay, now I can see that the, the inker was uh, was Dizanigo, who I like a lot. But yeah, it's just it's a cool. It's you know Cap just charging into a, a hail of uh, you know of gunfire essentially, but it's it's just really cool the way it's done. Okay, yeah, I'm just punching that one up. Yeah, that's that's kind of a, an iconic look, almost a poster image. Yeah, it, it looks a lot like I have one of those big um, 3D um, posters that you can buy. I think I got mine at like uh, Hobby Lobby or something. Uh, the image on that looks a lot like this. It's not the same one, but it looks a lot like it. Very similar. So to rate this one, uh, the cover is, is interesting because... It feels like there's almost too much going on, and the at a, at a first blush, the crouched down Ameridroid, like the positioning of him, I find a little just a little off-putting. But then the more I look at it, the more I think it's pretty creative and clever by Kane to manage to squeeze the giant figure in there and give you the discrepancy in size, and yet still have it you know fit on the cover. Yeah, that's what he's doing. Is he's just fitting this this enormous figure into the the space provided because that um, that logo is just massive. So yeah, yeah. Otherwise, he would have to do a, a you know pull back way further, and and then uh, right. you know it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be as effective or as, as dramatic if he didn't do that. So like I said, the closer I look at that, the more I kind of think it's pretty creative on his part to be able to do that. Uh, so the Ameridroid is a little freaky looking because of the positioning, but I give it credit for exactly what we just discussed. Oh, God. <laughs> I, sometimes you just can't I, I like, fucking win. Anyway, I like under the word Ameridroid, I just noticed that you've got the guy way off to the, the right-hand side right there looks like the question. He looks like he's about to, the, the, the evil purple 
dressed guy there looks like he's about to hit him with a stapler or something. It's just <laughs> funny. Yeah, I, I think the Captain America, you know, the actual Captain America, not the Amerigoid, I think he's really well drawn in the, you know, prototypical uh, Gil Kane pose. Have you ever noticed how many covers from around this general time period Cap's getting his ass kicked on the cover? I was noticing this a while ago because, as I said, I've been scarfing up back issues of Captain America like a madman on the cheap lately. And, like, I think it's 158 and 159 are almost exactly the same position for Cap on both covers. And both of them, he's, like, he's like taking a punch or a shot or something. I it's like so many of the covers from this era are, are Cap getting punched or shot, or you know, he doesn't look terribly heroic on the cover of his own mag in a lot of them because he's getting you know some form of, of kicked in the ass. It's just funny. Yeah, well, poor Cap. <laughs> uh, but but it, it is it does make it more dramatic. So I, I'm I'm a little torn. Like I I almost felt like I wanted to give it a lower grade because of some aspects of it, but I also wanted to give it a higher grade for creativity and and for drama. Uh, so I think I'm going to fall in the middle. I'm going to give it a B minus. Uh, you know, it's better than average. It's not as good as it could be. Uh, but quite honestly, you know, I would pick it up based on the on what's shown on the photo on the cover and and be very very interested in, in reading this book, which I was and I am and I like. So I might even you know what I'm going to not even say B minus. I'm going to say a solid, just a B. Uh, the interior art, I think Buscema's artwork is great. I think the or really good. I think the inking is pretty decent on both ends, but I'm just as you pointed out, I'm not thrilled with the fact that it's a little inconsistent. Uh, that you had two inkers and you can see a little bit of a difference between the two of them. So I'm gonna take it's nobody's fault, but I'm gonna take off points for the inconsistency and I'm gonna give it a B minus where it probably could have been. If it, if it had been either inker through the whole book, it probably would have been a solid B. But I'm going to say a B- minus because of the inconsistency. And the story is... It, it, I want to give it a really high grade because it's fun to read. And I want to take points off retconning Cap being thrown into the ice thing. Uh, I feel like that's a cheat and that, that he should lose some points for that. So I'm going to go B- minus on that where I might have gone higher if not for the cheat. And I'll give the book a B- minus overall. I think that's I think that's perfectly fair. Um, let's see here. Cover. I like the cover, but I don't love the cover. I think part of what brings it down for me is the big yellow streak, um, in the back, you know, the, basically the sky is yellow, which is just kind of a bizarre color choice on that. Um, it does feel a bit crammed into the available space, but that said, I think it's, it's making great use of the available space. So it, it, it's clever in that aspect. And I like that there's a lot of stuff going on in the background because that's one of the things I always liked as a kid with, with old comics was, you know, paying attention to what's happening in the background, you know, whether it was, you know, Superman flying over the city or fighting somebody or, you know, people falling out a window like on that. There was one cover I remember us talking about with like, I think it was Daredevil falling out a window or something and just all the stuff that was happening on the street with the passersby. I love stuff like that. And this one's just fun because, you know, as you say, you've got the, the guy about to get clouded with a, you know, a staple gun or whatever the hell that thing is that the guy's like, I just, I love stuff like that. So, you know, and you've got rubble all over. So it, it, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's visually interesting. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, as is kind of his shtick, I, I think Clausen or yeah, Clausen, Jan, Clausen Jansen's inks are just 
way overpowering because when I can't tell Gil Kane is Gil Kane, something's wrong with the art. And that's entirely on uh, on Jansen with this. Um, so yeah, art wise, I, I think I'd have to go like uh, I, I think B minus is is pretty fair because I do enjoy the coverage. Just it has a few issues. The hardest grade of all in this one for me is going to be the interior art because uh, now which Buscema is this? Is this is this Sal or or John? Sal. Sal. Because I, I like them both, I really do. Um, but. I don't know. There's a lot of this that I believe it's because of the inks. There's a lot of this that looks a little weak to me. Um, the flashback portions with the red skull, the red skull just looks, I don't know. He just looks rushed or something. He just doesn't look, he, he doesn't look very good, frankly. Um, and there's, there's a lot of that throughout the issue with certain faces and things like that. But, you know, one of the things with, with both the Buscemas that you could never fault them for was just the pure dynamism of their art. You know, much like Kirby, there was just a power that they had to the, you know, to their stances and to the different panels. And, you know, they were great with, with the, you know, the dynamic, the action stuff. And I like that. It's just, you know, the, the finished nature of it looks unfinished in a lot of, a lot of places. And again, I think a lot of that's because of the inking. Um, so art wise, uh, I don't know. I'm, it's probably going to sound harsh, but I think I'm going to go a C minus because I'm not crazy about it. I think it could be a lot better than what it is. It's not bad. It just could be a lot better. But it, you know, it's it's better than average. Uh, and then story wise, I really like the story, and that's even forgiving. You know, something I really didn't like, which is messing with you know this retcon of you know when Cap gets thrown in the ice. I just I like it. You know, keep it simple. You know, the the plane blew up. He couldn't save Bucky. He falls in the ice. He gets frozen, and we thaw him out. You know, twenty years later, keep it simple. This whole thing of messing with this portion of the timeline, where no Cap actually had one more adventure. You know, before he was. Fr- nah, that's just stupid to me. It really is. Just frankly, it's just really stupid. That said. You know, Glute was clever in the way that, you know, he, he pulled Cap out of the ice, used him for, you know, what, a half an hour or whatever, and then put him right back where he found him. You know, so I, I got to give him points for that. At least if he was going to do it, he had the respect to put him back where he found him. Um, so, you know, and the rest of it, I just I enjoyed probably more for nostalgia than anything else, because is it a great story? No, it's not. It's it's pretty damn silly. But just having a fondness for the Ameridroid it was fun to see where he came from, so I, I enjoyed it on that level. Um, so story-wise, uh, I'll, I'll be generous. I'll say a B minus. It's probably more of a C plus, but I'm going to say B minus because I really did get a kick out of it, and it's just damn fun. At the end of the day, more than anything else, it's just fun. I enjoyed reading it. So overall grade, uh, I think I'm going to match you with a B minus, honestly, because I, I really did get a kick out of it. All right. Okay, so Captain America being done, I guess we're off to your book, which is wow, it's old. Yes, this. I, I what is the oldest book we've ever done on this show? Do you know off the top of your uh, head? Not offhand, but I think this might be. This may be it. All right, so for this time around, we're looking for our DC book. We are looking at Superman two. No, not the movie. The issue, Superman number two from fall. It's dated. Fall 1939, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, was actually on the stands August 22nd, 1939. So, yeah, going way back for this one. What is that, 80, 80 years? Yeah. Whew. All right, so cover 80 on this 80 years one. now plus since we're in 2020. Right. 
Right? Yeah, it'll be 81 years uh, this August. That's that's crazy. That's crazy to think about. That's 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 uh <laughs> that's a lifetime right there. Oh yeah. All right. So cover on this one. <clears throat> Give me just a second to pull up my images here. All right, here we go. Cover on this one. Uh, the art is by Superman co-creator Joe Schuster as the penciler with inks by Paul Cassidy, which is a name I do not recognize. Uh, it depicts uh, – it's a very simple cover on this one. It's Superman um, – Arguably, you could say in flight, although at this time, Superman did not yet officially fly. So it's really it's Superman leaping. But Superman's in the sky. He's above kind of a I'm presuming that's like a snow capped mountain behind him. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a very simple image of Superman in the sky. Um, It's uh, 10 cents cover price. The 10 cents is very prominent on it. It's uh, like I say, a very simple cover. You've got the number two up at the top, the Superman logo in blue, which is interesting. Uh, So 64 pages in color. And then below that uh, says another complete book of the astounding adventures of the one and only Superman. Um, Now we're just looking at the first story in this particular book, um, which was written by Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel and art was by the aforementioned uh, Schuster and Cassidy team. Um, Some history on this story. So this particular story, you have to remember during this time, Superman had just hit it big, right? He just debuted um, just a little over a year prior to this in Action Comics number one and was a big star right away. And Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were doing all the stories for Superman and churning this stuff out as fast as they could. But because of the demand, there was just, you know, this incredible demand for Superman stories. And now suddenly Superman uh, has a whole nother title to support in addition to action comics. Now there's Superman, you know, as a title. So they were trying to dig up stories wherever they could to, you know, to populate these books. So this particular story originally appeared it is a reprint, originally appeared as a serial in the Superman news, uh, daily newspaper strip. Um, for, you know, for those that want to know, it was uh, strips 31 through, oh, my note's wrong here. It was 50-something. Shoot, I made a note of it, but my note didn't, didn't take properly. I want to say like 58, something like that. Um, but the dates were February 20th through March 18th of uh 1939 uh is when this uh appeared in newspapers and was printed originally in black and white in the newspaper so it was not color uh it has been colored for this reprinting in superman number two. Oh, that's cool what is this from paul uh, i was just doing a search for the cover and that that came up so i'm not sure it looks like a like a scrapbook kind of image that's neat i wonder if that's the the whole image you know what I mean? Before they kind of truncated it by putting the the verbiage on the cover. No, well, the, number the, the actual Superman himself looks slightly different. Oh, yeah. So I, I think they took the oh. image from Superman number two and then tried to uh, ape it for purposes. And and for anybody listening, uh, it's it's a cover. It, it says Superman scrapbook. It, it looks to be like almost like a notebook, like a wirebound notebook. Uh, which yeah. I think that's probably more realistically what it was. And it, it's got a similar image of Superman over a mountain range, only the mountain range is slightly more expansive. And then on to the, off to the right, there's uh, some uh, lightning lines with the SOS written in between it. So, you know, showing that he's, I guess, uh, responding to some sort of emergency call. Right. Uh, 
And I, I would think it's it's a notebook is all it is. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I've never seen that before. That's actually neat. So originally this story uh, was untitled. It had no title. Uh, the title that it has come to be known by, uh, The Comeback of Larry Trent, was given on the contents page of Superman The Dailies, uh, which is a reprinting uh, in which the original newspaper strip version of the story was reprinted and colored, uh, in which, coincidentally, I am currently reading. So synopsis for this particular story. So before we get into this, got a question for you, Paul. Shoot. Have you ever had to synopsize a very simple story that when you were done with your synopsis, you realized that it was actually quicker to just read the damn story than it was for you to <laughs> synopsize it? Yes, that's I have. Exactly that's that's Dr. Bill's world. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how this turned out for me because I sat down this morning mere minutes before you and I were supposed to go online and start recording to synopsize this. And about halfway through, I'm like, damn, this has taken me forever to synopsize this very short, simple story. So anyway, here we go, folks. Strap in. <clears throat> so one evening, while out searching for someone in need of assistance, Superman sights someone falling off a bridge. Superman, who couldn't yet fly in the fall of 1939, dives after the figure, who's a man, and grabs him. Deliberately, Superman receives the brunt of the shock when they strike the water. Later, when they reach the shore, Superman finally gets a good look at the guy that he saved and realizes that he looks familiar, although he can't immediately place his face. The man revives and is seriously annoyed with the Man of Steel. Fool, he cries. I was committing suicide. He attempts to give our hero what for, and his fighting stance jogs Superman's memory. I've got it, says Superman. You're Larry Trent, ex-heavyweight champion of the world. Superman asks the former champ what drove him to suicide, and Trent relates his tale of woe. His manager was a crook who made a deal with gangsters for the champ to lose, but knowing Trent would never agree to take a dive, instead drugged him so that he was KO'd and then lost his title. On the decline ever since, Trent has been reduced to $5 a night fights, when he can get them, just to survive. Finally, at the end of his rope, he just wants to die. If I were to restore the title to you, asked Superman, would it bring back your self-respect? Would it? But what, uh, but what could you possibly do, asked Trent. Disguise myself as you, answers the Man of Steel, and battle my way to the heavyweight champion of the world, or championship, rather, of the world. Trent's initial excitement at this prospect of having his restored uh, his title restored deflates as he considers Superman's apparently slight frame. Now, Superman during this time, he, he was a pretty, uh, I don't want to say scrawny guy, but I mean, he wasn't huge and bulky either. He was he was pretty slight of frame. And uh, Trent thinks that uh, Superman would just frankly just be knocked out cold the minute he entered the ring. So Superman then demonstrates his amazing strength by uprooting a nearby large tree and then hoisting it over his head. Now do you believe I've got a chance for the heavyweight title of the world? Of the world? Good lord, of the universe! I love that line. And so Superman scoops up Larry and leaps across town, remember he couldn't fly, leaps across town to an apartment he has rented for emergencies. That's what the caption actually says. This is where you'll stay for the next several months, he tells Trent. So this story, <laughs> while rather short, apparently is months in, in the happening here. Next, he applies makeup to expertly alter his, feature, uh, his features so that he is the spitting image of Larry Trent. Now, it's important to point out that 
initially I was really looking forward to asking the, the listeners to the show, did you know about this superpower of Superman's? Superman, in the very earliest days, actually had malleable features where he could actually change the shape of his face to disguise himself as other people. I misremembered this story as one of the instances where he did that. And now I'm struggling to remember, did he do that prior to this story or after this story? I don't remember. But in this particular story, it actually says he uses makeup. He does not just change his face. But for a time, that was actually a superpower that he had, was the ability to actually change his features. Anyway, so disguised, Superman proceeds to Trent's next bout where he's to participate in what is presumably meant to be uh, sort of like a last man standing 12 man brawl type of thing. Like all 12 guys go in the ring at the same time. I've never heard this before. Oh, okay. That's what they call it in wrestling. I have no idea about it. Uh, Boxing. Right. So to the astonishment of the crowd, Larry Trent in quotes, because it's Superman, Larry Trent decks all 11 of the other opponents in one blow and thus is on his way to restoring his, uh, again, in quote, his lost title. In the meantime, back in Superman's apartment, he and Trent, meaning Superman and Trent, spar regularly as he learns important details about the people that he's liable to come in contact with in Trent's world. Eventually, Superman as Trent is sent to Jock Kane, famous fight promoter. While he speaks with Kane, Slugger Dolan hassles him. Fed up, Superman knocks Dolan silly, seemingly earning his respect. Dolan convinces Kane to give Trent, and again, this is Superman disguised as Trent, a second chance and a range about. After Superman leaves, Dolan says he wants to be the opponent so that he can give our hero the beating of his life as payback for embarrassing him. But things don't quite work out for Dolan as he expects, and Superman, again disguised as Trent, is declared the winner, and when asked by a newspaperman if he's going to make another try for the title, responds that he's not going to just try, he's going to get it. Later in his dressing room, Superman, still disguised as Trent, meets Trent's old shifty manager, Tom Croy, who promises to put him back on uh, on the top of the heap again. Secretly, however, he just intends to pull the same dirty trick on Trent that he used the last time, the, the drug thing. Superman, though, is wise to this and intends to teach old Tom a lesson. Meanwhile, we are treated to a short scene that shows that Superman is still maintaining his Clark Kent identity and reporting on Trent's reascension through the boxing ranks. Finally, having battled his way up to a title bout, we see Superman and Trent once again sparring in the apartment, and Superman tells Larry that he, Trent, is now back in tip-top condition thanks to his constant training with the Man of Steel and is going to be the one that goes in the ring and is going to win that title for himself. On the night of the fight, the gangsters gangsters are reliant on Old Tom to take care of Trent and make sure he loses or else. The bell rings and Trent leaps from his corner, determined to win back the coveted title. But at the end of each round, Tom keeps trying to get Trent to drink drugged water again, just like last time. Trent, suspicious, repeatedly refuses, but at the end of round six, just doesn't have the strength to fight him off anymore. But then Superman shows up and forces Tom to take his own medicine, to which the crooked manager runs screaming, Help! I'm poisoned! Which I love. Wrathful at seeing his crooked scheme foiled, Tom Croy's gambler accomplice pulls out a pistol and prepares to fulfill his threat to kill Larry Trent. 
Leaping in, Superman jams his hand over the gun's muzzle, and the weapon explodes in the killer's face, which begs the question, where the hell is all this happening at? Is this ringside in full view of everybody? The, the story really does not make that clear. It Unaware, would have to be, wouldn't it? it would, yeah, it would have to be. Because still in the ring. Now, much of... Exactly. Now, much of my synopsis, including this next sentence, is taken directly from the captioning of the issue. So it says, unaware of the drama enacted outside the ring. I'm like, huh? It's right there, apparently. Anyway, unaware of this, Larry Trent knocks down his opponent for the count and is declared the winner and the new heavyweight champion of the world. So he regains his title. Later, as Larry goes to thank the man really responsible for his comeback, he finds the apartment empty, except for a note which reads... You don't need me any longer, Larry. And so, farewell. Sincere congratulations, Superman. And that's essentially the end of the story. It's a very simple story. It's very straightforward. And I can't exactly tell you why, but I love it. I really like this story a lot. I'm not sure where I first read this, because Mike's Amazing World gives a listing of places it's been reprinted. Um, one of which, as I said before, I'm reading right now. But I swear I've read this story at some point in the past, and uh, and I just I really like it. And, you know, having stumbled upon it again here recently, you know, and, and refamiliarizing myself with it, um, you know, I've said many times I'm not a big fan of, of Golden Age stuff. So often I find it to be really just corny and hokey and bad art and stupid stories and all. But there's some, there's a certain charm to this one that I really really like. And I, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to it, it's a very human story. You know, Superman's not saving the world or the universe or Lois Lane for the billionth time or any, you know, he's not fighting Lex Luthor or anything. He's just he's helping a Joe out. And I think th that there's a certain charm to that that I really like. You know, he, he took a shine to this guy. Superman, when he when he realizes who this guy is, there's a look on his face of almost it's like hero worship, like like maybe Superman was a fan of this guy. And I think that's cool, you know, that, that Superman has heroes, too. I, I, I find that a really cool idea. But for whatever reason, you know, he, he spends, uh, you know, presumably months because he tells, you know, Larry that we're going to be in this apartment for months. So presumably he spends months helping out one person. And I think that's cool. I think that's really neat that, you know, he, he, he sees this guy in need that is at his lowest point, you know, so low he, he wants to kill himself. And, and helps him regain what he's lost. And I don't know, that there's something really cool about that that just really appeals to me. This is just the kind of story I can't, I, I can't really see ever happening for Superman today. I, I just don't know if it would really work in, in, in modern stories. But this is fun. This is a real Golden Age gem as far as I'm concerned. What did you think of it, Paul? Um, I don't remember ever reading this before, so this was my first uh, experience with it. And picturing it as a daily comic strip actually makes it better in my mind. Uh, right. It, it seems to flow that way, you know. Like it, it seems to explain kind of some of the some some of the excess description words in there. I don't know. Um, yes. Yeah. But it, it's you know it, it is it's what I expect from a decent golden age story uh some golden age stories were just so out there that, that that you read them and you're just scratching your head thinking what what the hell is the point here you know these are stories written for you know 10 year olds and and i don't understand what they're saying <laughs> so right. how would a 10 year old right. understand it um and some of them because you know because of the 
rudimentary artwork are hard to follow for that reason too. Storytelling hadn't really progressed at that point either from an art perspective. I think, you know, these, these, a lot of the 1930s and 40s artists were, were very amateurish in how they did things. Uh, yeah. but this, this is fairly well drawn. It's, uh, you know, it's easy to follow. Uh, like you said, it's actually quicker to read than it is to synopsize. Right. Um, this, I mean, the, the, the premise is just kind of silly. Uh, that he's going to put on makeup and pretend to be this guy and spend months getting back to where he should be. Uh, I One of the things I did like about it, though, because if Superman went out and completed the task and knocked out the champion to get the championship back for him, I think that would have been, in Superman's mind, a cheat, and it would have been out of character. I think he needed to have right. him actually win the title himself. Right. So I, I like that they story. did that. Yeah, I, I do, too. There's another story very similar to this um, that was later where Superman does a, kind of a similar thing for uh, a guy. It, it's funny because in that one, Superman doesn't seem as altruistic. He actually seems almost almost mean spirited about it. There, there's this guy who's essentially he's just a complete puss and it annoys Superman. And so he decides I'm going to make a real man out of this guy. And and he's almost I want to say vindictive. He's not vindictive, but he's almost kind of a kind of a jerk about it you know and it just doesn't work near as well and in that story um it it runs the same risk of i I kept thinking through the whole story if superman solves all this guy's problems for him then the guy learns nothing and and everything's kind of a cheat so when i read this story or or reread this one because like i said the story seems familiar to me but i just can't place if i actually ever did read it before or if it just seemed familiar I'm, i'm not sure but anyway reading this story again recently and getting to that point where he's about to go you know basically he's going for the the title i had that nervousness like well if superman just does all this for him then then that's that's not right but I, I really like the sequence where he he tells Larry, well, I, I've set it all up for you. Now it's up to you. I really like that. And I like also you know, what I what I kind of would have predicted was that Larry would would have like a, oh, wait, you know, w- wait, what? <laughs> you know, like he like he'd been set up. But instead, he he regains his confidence. He's like, yeah. And he's, he says, Yahoo, I'll knock him silly. So he even believes, you know, he believes in himself again. And mm-hmm. I like that. I thought, you know, again, it's it's very simple, but there's just there's such a charm to it that I really liked. And he does, you know, he he gets back in there and and he, you know, he takes care of business. Yeah. I think one of the other things I really liked about this story is, you know, it really demonstrates something that was very characteristic of this Superman cuz Superman would change a lot from from what he's like in these early stories to what we know as Superman today. But during this time, and it's really greatly demonstrated in this story, is that Superman really thrilled with his own powers, and he wasn't afraid to to show off. He he, I don't know that he was ever necessarily a bully, although I guess it could be argued he would bully the bad guys. You know, he would clearly, you know, he wasn't afraid of giving somebody a good thrashing or something. But more than anything, he just he enjoyed his power and he enjoyed being tougher than everybody else. And I, there's something about that. I, that I like. as long as he's not a jerk about it, I like that. I, I like that. You know, that, you know, I used to, I used to joke a lot, you know, and, and say things like, you know, 
why does Superman put up with this crap? You know, why doesn't he just like, I'm Superman and I'm just going to, and this Superman would do that. You know, this Superman wasn't afraid to be like, well, I'm Superman, so I'm just going to do it, you know? Yeah. And I like, you know, that where he knocks out all 11 of those other guys and he just stands there and, and says to the, I don't know, the ref or the promoter or whatever, he goes, got any more? I'd, I'd love that pose. He's just, he's reveling in his power over regular men. And I, I don't know. Again, I really like that, but he's not doing it in a, you know, in a weird way or in a, in a jerk kind of way. He's just, he is tougher than everybody else. And he's, he wasn't afraid to kind of show off a little bit sometimes. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's misdirected, but there's almost a feeling like everybody deserves it because of what they did to uh, Larry Trent. And it's misdirected because these guys he's knocking out didn't do it mm-hmm. but just the same you know you feel like well you know whatever has to be done to get this guy back what he deserves uh is is justified so for that reason you, you know you almost feel okay with it all uh and you know i mean without documenting anything it seems that it was fairly well thought of that boxing was very corrupt especially back in the days before there were commissions right. to really you know look at what you know what they were doing and who was doing what uh so to take aim at them back then in you know 1939 was probably probably a, a pretty reasonable thing so i'm i'm sure there were guys you know with, again without giving documentation of it or anything and without looking for uh, authority for what I'm saying. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure there were there were guys who were corrupt in that way and, uh, you know, did things to uh, I, I don't know about slipping poison to their uh, fighters, but you know, did things to throw, <laughs> throw fights and, you know, to take advantage of the gambling uh, aspect of things. So, you know, for that reason, I, I feel like it, it, it's almost uh, it almost hits home in, in that regard because it almost seems, you know, to be realistic. Uh, you know, some of it's some funny. The guy tries to give him a, a hot foot and he ends up burning his own finger. Uh, you know, just, just kind of silliness a lot of it, but it's, it, it is, I, I think I need to be in a golden age mood to read these kind of books. Right. Because it's so different from what I grew up with. Uh, but when I read this, I was in the right frame of mind and I really enjoyed reading. Everybody looks like a palooka too. Everybody, including super. Right. Yeah. Yes. Except when he's yeah, Clark Kent, then he looks like uh, you know a dignified businessman. But other than that, he, you know, he ev- everybody looks like they're uh, you know they're ready to go three rounds. <laughs> so, but it was fun. I'm, I'm glad you picked this one because it's it's an era that I don't visit that often. And like I said, I do have to be in the right frame of mind for it. But if I am in the right frame of mind, that's a lot of fun. And this one was, and I would. Cool. Well, are we ready for some grades? Yeah, I think so. You go first. All right. Um. I'll do cover, although, you know, there's many other stories in this in this book. You know, it was it was a huge book. I'm trying to remember if the other stories were reprints or if there was any originals. I don't remember. But anyway, the cover has no bearing on the story, but I'll grade it anyway. Um, I like it. It's it's just it's super, super simple. So um, I'll say a B. I mean, it's it's fun. It's interesting. Um, I think, you know, for for someone back during this time, it'd probably be more than likely get you to snap it up off the stands because Superman was the he was the hot thing at the moment. So I don't think it really had to do anything more than just have him on the cover, which it does. Um, The art for this particular story, it's very basic. It's pretty much what you would expect of uh, of Golden Age Superman art. but that said, I, I think it's well done. And, and you really pointed something out, Paul, that I hadn't thought of, is that 
it's easy to follow because there are, uh, you know, because I'm I'm reading a lot of this early Superman stuff right now, and there are uh, in Golden Age art in general, but even in Superman in particular, there are a lot of instances in the artwork where you can't tell exactly what was supposed to have just happened. Uh, the, there's there's not the flow that comics would eventually have. There's not quite the language yet. Um, I didn't have that problem with this particular story. And, and another problem that comics from this era had a lot of times is figuring out the order of word balloons. Because, again, they hadn't quite adopted the language of comics yet to where you knew exactly what the flow was. And you could tell by looking at the at the panels what the order of speech was. They hadn't perfected that yet. So in a lot of early stories like this, you, you have to go back and read things a couple of times to, to figure out the order of the speech. That I don't have that problem in this particular story, so I like that. Um, the, the panels seem to be placed properly where there's like one above the other or, or whatever, so you can read it left to right like a natural book or like a natural story. Um, so it didn't it didn't suffer from those problems, which is probably another reason that, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, I, I enjoyed it more than I enjoy other stories from this time period. Um, but anyway, we were talking about the art um, art wise. I, I, it's it's so hard to grade art from this time because it's just not really my bag. But that said, I, I like this. Uh, it's not, you know. It's by far my you know my preferred style or whatever, but I enjoy it. I can follow it, and some of it you know in its own way is dynamic. I, I love the panels where Superman's just showing off and just kind of reveling in his power. Those those are instances that really work for me. So I don't know. I'm gonna say a, I'll say a C plus. It, it's better than art from this time typically is, and it, and it was fairly easy to follow. Story-wise, I'm going to give it a straight-up A. I really enjoy it. Now, that's with the caveat of, you know, it's a product of its time. It's very simple. Um, You know, it has a certain perspective on the world and all that. But, again, as someone who typically can't really get into anything from this particular time period, I I enjoy the hell out of this. It's, It's actually become one of my favorite Superman stories now just, you know, through what it is. So, yeah, I'll give it a straight-up A story-wise. So, overall, uh I don't know what's that work out to B B minus something like that. So yeah, I, I like this a lot. I really do. Okay, I think uh, in order to be fair in the ratings, we kind of have to look at this as a product of its time, as you mentioned. Uh, I think mm-hmm. if you, you know, you, you, I don't think you can fairly rate this by today's standards, art or story. Right. Right. But you know, again, like I said, I, I kind of have to get myself into a golden age frame of mind to read books from this era and. You know, it, because of the way you set this up, it, it, it made me realize a lot of times that is similar to back in the days when we'd get the Sunday paper and I would read the funnies. And there would be the ongoing storylines, either Dick Tracy, Annie, or whatever. You know, it, which, yeah, it's surprising enough, Annie was actually a pretty good cartoon strip in the day because it would be continuing stories of our adventures. Or, or the one that I guess I read the most probably back then was Dondi. Uh, so that, I'm sure that makes me feel seem very very old but it is reality <laughs> and and reading this story from that perspective of the you know every day you get it and you see a couple of panels uh really just kind of brings it home and and you know to to bring it even more into our world uh 
you know, I remember in the 70s when they started the Spider-Man cartoon strip, and it was a daily strip in the paper, and I would follow it every day, and it was a stretch where I was actually cutting them out of the paper every day and, and maintaining a, a book of them, which I guess got thrown out at some point. But, uh, oh. you know, there is, there is an element of, you know, that to reading this, that, that art style to reading this, and when you read it in that fashion, it flows much better. Uh, so, again, taking it with those thoughts in mind uh the cover the cover is very generic quite frankly it doesn't really uh present anything other than to tell you this is going to be a book of superman adventures and it doesn't it doesn't really present a great image of superman frankly I, i'm going to say a b minus on the cover because i i just think it, even back then it could have been much more than it is uh and they you know but but it was a developing art style too they i don't think they knew exactly how to present it this this appears to me more like the cover of a you know of a, of a children's book than a comic but i think that may have been their frame of reference at the so you know that's i guess where where it was going the interior art very very similar to the art style you see in action comics number one you know, very similar right. to that art. It does, you know, it hasn't progressed in, in the short period of time since then. It hasn't progressed much, but it's 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 very very similar. So, if, you know, I, I would imagine most of our listeners are familiar with the art in that issue, where they may not be familiar with this particular. So, if you picture that art style, that's what you're getting. Uh, and it, it's it's pretty clean for the day, and it does tell the story well. And I I think it's you know again for the time period it's in. I, I think it's it's very solid, and I'm going to say a B plus on the art. Again, rating it for a product of its time. Uh, the story is kind of fun, uh, and it, it's silly. You know, the, element, the the aspect that he could just put on makeup and look exactly like this guy and go in the ring and fight and still have that makeup maintained enough that people are going to. Although right. he probably never took a punch to the face throughout any of these matches anyway. Uh, but just you know, it's kind of silly, and the fact that he spent months doing this is also kind of silly. Uh, but you know, again, as an element of its time and a product of its time, uh, it was it was a fun story. So I'm going to say, a, you know, a solid B on that. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's all, that's everything, right? That's cover story art. Okay, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to give the book overall a B plus because or this this story overall B plus because it, it was it was fun to read and it was enjoyable. Cool. I'm glad you liked it. Oh, very much. So that's... I, I know this was way out of our, our usual uh, zone, so I was a little nervous about that. It's kind of cool to go out of our zone <laughs> once in a while, though. We, sh- we should do that, you know. We, you, you don't want to go too out of far out of your zone too too often, because I think then you alienate your listeners uh, to the point where they say, well, you're not covering stuff I'm interested in. But every once in a while to open the right. door to something new, I think it's a, it's a good... Uh, a good way to do it. And we opened the door to something new with, you know, with the other book that we covered was, you know, much more traditional back to the bins fair. So, and uh, this was fun. Thanks for uh, making the time to do this today, Scott. Absolutely. And uh, thank you everybody for making the time to listen to us. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to our show. And we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue. Awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. 
please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Superman! I'm waiting for you! I want to see what makes you so super! Where do you suppose he is? You don't think he's scared, do you? Why would he be scared of me? Superman! Oh, Superman! Are you looking for me? your pleasure. A prize fight. Marquis of Queensberry rules. Of course. Are you hurt, Superman? No, he just caught me off guard, that's all. Keep your left off!